The Blind Men and the Elephant by John Godfrey Sachs. It was six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each, by observation, might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall against this broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl, God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second, feeling of the tusk, cried, Oh, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp. To me, tis mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal. And happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up he spake, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out an eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear, said, Even the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth, no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. Amen. No, I don't think you say that after a poem. (laughs) A little right, but all wrong. That's what happens when people don't have a view for the whole, the all the entire. And then it happens to you and it happens to me in our lives all the time. You know, we have the truth. We can hold it in our hands. But our backgrounds and our different perspectives shape the way we see not only the world, but the way we see God and the way we see his truth. And so we tend to be fragment people. We see in part, part of the truth, part of who God is, part of his plan for us and his kingdom here on earth. So what we desperately need this morning is to see the whole, the entirety. Why? Because we live in a Humpty Dumpty world. Fragments, broken fragments are all around us. A fragmented country, fragmented homes, families, communities, cities, churches, Who will put the pieces back together again? Who will restore wholeness? We know the answer. It's God. Through the power of His Spirit, joining with His Word, proclaimed and lived out by people who strive to see the whole. People who will join with others. Others created in the image of God. Who have a different perspective so that Together we can better see the whole, better understand the whole, better bring about wholeness in ourselves and in our culture. And so that should be a goal for our lives. We strive for wholeness for ourselves, for our city, and for our world.
If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn in them to Deuteronomy, wait for it, chapter 34. Deuteronomy chapter 34, when you found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 34, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the western sea, the Negev and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When I said, I will give it to your descendants, I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, bless us now, your people, as we come to your word, to your truth. Father, give us a vision to see the entirety of of what you would have us see as your people and your vision and your purpose for us and for our lives and for this world. Father, we need your spirit to enable us to do this. And so we thank you that we have your spirit joining with your word. And so, Lord, we expect great transformation to come in this place on this day as we gather around your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Verse 1 tells us that then Moses began to climb Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab. Then, of course, is after Moses has finished preaching. And by and large, that really is what Deuteronomy is, as we've looked at it these last four years. It's really just a series of sermons that Moses preached to prepare God's people to live really well in the land that he was giving to them. We know of no other words spoken by Moses after the conclusion of chapter 33. And so now it's time for Moses to step down out of the pulpit. Now it's time for Moses himself to, in faith, trust and believe that God is who he has been proclaiming God to be to all these people for all these many years. Otherwise, Moses is a hypocrite requiring other people to believe what he does not himself believe, requiring other people to do what he himself is too fearful to do. You and I do that all all the time, don't we? We exclude ourselves from what we look for and require of others. For instance, how well do you live out the faith that you require others to live by? How lavishly do you pour out grace on those from whom you expect to receive grace? How well do you extend the compassion that you expect others to extend? How quickly and completely do you offer the forgiveness that you expect other people to offer? You seek justice for yourself. You seek mercy for yourself. Where are your acts of justice and mercy on behalf of others. Some questions we have to answer because 
when you and I won't get out of the pulpit, people can see that we aren't real, we aren't authentic, and we're certainly not whole. And so how can we ever hope to help others find wholeness? So Moses has to get out of the pulpit. And the good news is that he does. He finishes speaking, and before him is Mount Nebo. And he knows he's going there to die. God has already said to him, Climb out Mount Nebo, and there you will die, and you will be gathered to your people. But what has Moses just said? He's just said to his people, God's people, As your day, so shall your strength be. So in the strength of the Lord, Moses begins to climb. He's just said to his people, The Lord is your shield and helper and your glorious sword. And so in the strength of the Lord, Moses begins to climb. Moses has had glorious times in the past with the Lord on the mountain, Mount Sinai. Thunder, lightning, flashes, fire. There he received the word of the Lord on tablets of stone. There he ate in the presence of the Lord. So in faith in the past goodness of the Lord, Moses begins to climb. And as Moses climbs, glory awaits. Look in verse 2. When he climbed the mountain... There the Lord showed him the whole land. Not 12 fragmented tribal pieces of it, but but all of the land, the whole of it, the land that was promised in its entirety. The land, the way God sees it, as a unified whole. The land in a way Moses had not been able to see it before. The land in a way that Moses could not see it while he was experiencing the daily grind of leading and caring for all of his people. Here comes a tribe appearing as a wall. Another tribe is a spear. Another one is a snake. Another one is a tree. Another one is a fan. Another one is a rope. And on and on. But no more. Now, God lifts Moses out of that and allows him to see a vision for the whole. Though not all commentators agree on this point, I throw my lot in with those who believe there was a supernatural element in this seeing. How it was that Moses could stand in one spot and see the entirety, the vastness of the promised land. Perhaps God did something to strengthen Moses' eyes so he could see at a great distance. Perhaps the Lord brought a vision of the land before Moses. The coolest thought is that the Lord transported him, right? And that in a moment, he took him throughout the land and and Moses was able to see it. I don't know. But I do know that God was very insistent that Moses see the whole of the land. That's where God puts his emphasis on seeing the whole. Back in chapter 3, verse 27, God told Moses, Go up to the top of Pisgah and look west and north and south and east Look at the land with your own eyes. As far as you can see, Moses, look in every direction. Deuteronomy 32, God says, you will see the land. And here in verse 4 of this chapter, God says, I have let you see it with your eyes. So dispel the thought that God is being cruel here. 
That he's letting Moses see what he desires, but that he will never experience. It's not what God is doing. God is doing a beautiful thing here for Moses. Make no mistake about it. Moses wants to enter the land. And that desire is not going to be granted him. It's a punishment for his sin, for sure. But follow along to what God is doing for Moses and look for the glory and the grace of it. Here's where you have to follow along. A little boring, but follow along. In the ancient Hebrew world, land was transferred when the purchaser formally inspected the land. When the, when the buyer went and saw it and looked at it, then the land became officially his. And so that's why God told Abraham, the man to whom he first gave the promise of the land, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Genesis 13, the Lord said to Abraham, look around from where you are to the north and the south, to the east and the west, all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. So see, Abraham never owned the land, and yet Abraham owned the land. The length of it, the breadth of it, by the promise of God and by seeing the land as God had commanded. The same thing is true in the parable that Jesus tells about the great banquet. Do you remember that story? Everybody refuses to come to the banquet that the master has prepared. And one man says he cannot come because he has to go see the field that he has purchased. Now, the man is not an idiot. He had not purchased a field that he hadn't seen. What the man means is I've got to go take official possession of it. I've got to go see it. So in that way, it becomes mine. That's what the Lord is doing here for Moses, giving him ownership of this land, Calling the land, not by the names of the nations that are now in it, but by the names of the tribes of Israel. And so how good it is of God, he redeems Moses' punishment so that there's glory in it. And so I think that in this moment, years before David wrote it, Moses could have written Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, You are with me. I fear no evil. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Was Moses facing death? Absolutely. Was the Lord there to comfort him? Unquestionably. Were there enemies along the way? Without a doubt. The slavery of Egypt, Pharaoh, pagan nations along the way to the promised land, sin and rebellion. But guess what? They did not win. God will have the whole land. That's his vision. That's his purpose. So in this moment, Moses feasts in the presence of his enemies. The presence of God's enemies who would thwart the good plan and the good purpose of God. Moses feasts as his eyes behold the whole of the promised land. God has won. And so how could Moses' cup not be overflowing? Goodness and mercy had followed him every step of the way. Even these final steps up this mountain. And Moses in just moments is going to dwell in the house of the Lord 
forever. And so up until the very end, God proves himself to be true once again. God is working toward wholeness in the land. But we need to remember, as we look at these verses, that the whole is made up of the parts. And so look in verses 1 through 3. The tribes are named there one by one. It's as if God wants to impress upon Moses that the beautiful whole is made up of the parts. And so each tribe, each tribe has just received their blessings that reflect the character of the Lord. When they take possession of the promised land, each tribe will be able to look all around them at the other tribes and they'll be able to see different attributes of God and and reflect upon the wholeness of God, not just their individual tribe, but the entirety of it. Without each tribe emphasizing a different aspect of the character of God, Israel isn't Israel. They're just fragments, humpty dumpty pieces, individual parts that the blind men felt. But together, all of them display the wholeness of God. And so we look at those individual pieces. Fifteen weeks, we looked at those individual pieces that fill out the wholeness of God before our eyes. Let Reuben live and not die. Remember Reuben? Though his sin was great, he was not cut off. Because of the grace of God, Reuben would go on. There's grace. There's leadership here. O Lord, the cry of Judah. With his hand, he defends his cause. O be his help against his foes. Judah was always first in battle. Why? Because the Lord is the one who truly led the way. And when the Lord leads the way, his people can faithfully follow, uh, uh, fearlessly and faithfully follow. Levi, your Tumim and Urim belong to the man you favored. Through tossing these ancient stones, God faithfully guided and counseled his people. Levi, you teach your precepts and your law to Israel through his word. God directed the steps of his people so they would not wander in darkness. Benjamin, the beloved of the Lord, rests secure in him, for he shields him all day long. The one the Lord loves rests between his shoulders. There's rest in the Lord for the people of God. That's what he gives to us. Even in the midst of battle, even in the heat of battle, the Lord gives rest as he carries us, his people, on his back between the blades of his shoulders. Joseph, may the Lord bless his land with the precious dew from heaven, with the best and the finest and the choicest gifts. The love of God. God takes pleasure and delights in his relationship with his people and blessing them abundantly. It is the complacent love of God, the with pleasure love that God gives to his people. Zebulun and Issachar, rejoice in your going out and in your tents. We've been whistling while we work ever since, haven't we? Because God blesses his people with joy in their work, while they work. Whatever their work, there is joy to be had, joy in the Lord. Gad, 
He chose the best for himself. The leader's portion was kept for him. Gad had already received his inheritance, but he chose to fight on behalf of his brothers and sisters. He did not rest until they had rest. And so it is with the Lord. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Self-sacrifice. Dan is a lion's cub springing out of Bashan. The power of the full-grown lion is latent in the timid cub. The cub, that's us. When we are weak, when we are timid, when we are fearful, God is with us and God is strong for us. Naphtali. Oh, Naphtali, be sated with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord. The Lord is the one who satisfies his people completely. Jesus stood in the land of Naphtali and spoke these famous words. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Satisfaction is what the Lord gives his people. And then finally, Asher. How we love Asher. Favored by his brother. People of peace. The Lord giving Asher healthy relationships. Where the truth The word of the Lord can flourish. Asher, bathing his feet in oil, experiencing the abundance of the Spirit of God, so that in his life it is not by might, nor by power, but by your Spirit. Asher, with his shoes of iron, there's nothing upon which Asher cannot tread because the Lord is strong. Asher, as your days, so shall your strength be. We live life in the moment. We don't seek to determine what our days will be or or how many they'll be, but we define each day by living in dependence on the daily presence of the Lord. These are the parts that make up the whole. It's not just grace. It's grace and leadership of the Lord. It's not just grace and leadership, but it's grace and leadership and guidance. It's not just grace and leadership and guidance but rest as well. And not just grace and leadership and guidance and rest, but love and joy and self-sacrifice and strength and satisfaction and the power of the Spirit and the favor of the Lord and His daily presence. These are the parts that make up the whole. And to focus on any one of them in exclusion of the others is to miss the whole. To misidentify God as the blind men misidentified the elephant, but we don't need to make that mistake. You and I don't. Because God has blessed us with a vision for the whole. What the world can be like. What the world can look like. When His people have the vision and work toward bringing it about. So I want to put before you a vision for wholeness. A vision that you and I have to own, like Moses owned the vision he saw. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, My goal is that they, people that the Apostle has not yet met, may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. For in Him 
all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. Our vision is simply this. It's a vision of Jesus in whom the fullness of the deity exists in bodily form. It's a vision of wholeness, a vision of completeness that can only be found in Christ. In Him and in Him alone, you are complete. Do you believe that? We have to own that vision. Wholeness and completeness can only be found in Jesus. That is true for you, and it's true for every single person you know or will ever meet. Wholeness can be found only in Christ. Ephesians 1, And God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Jesus fills, completes everything. We have to own that vision. So when we're talking about wholeness, we're talking about Jesus and according to this verse and the church. Together, Jesus and the church, there's wholeness. These are incomprehensible verses. Here's what John Calvin writes about the Ephesians passage. This is the highest honor of the church. That until he is united to us, the Son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. What consolation is it for us to learn that not until we are along with him does he possess all his parts or wish to be regarded as complete That he fills all things in all ways is added to guard against the supposition that any real defect would exist in Christ. If he were separated from us, his wish to be filled and in some respects made perfect in us arises from no want or necessity. For all that is good in ourselves or in any of the creatures is the gift of his hands. And his goodness appears the more remarkably and raising us out of nothing, that he, in like manner, may dwell and live in us. Can you even get your mind around that? That according to the, the will of God, and by his design, the church, that's us, is part of the wholeness of Christ. Jesus has made it so that the church is part of his completeness. The church in some way fills up the power and the glory of Jesus. It's amazing. And it means that you and I better own a vision of wholeness in Christ. Keeping Jesus in our vision and putting him before others in everything. Because in him there is wholeness. Hearts are made whole. Homes are made whole. Cities are made whole. Through Christ, Humpty Dumpty, pieces get put back together again. Let me tell you, we have a vision here at Redeemer for putting Jesus before people. 
We have a vision for offering wholeness in Christ. And if we're not about that, church, why are we here? Why do we exist if we're not putting Christ before others? So we have a vision. What do we see? Well, we see community groups. We see individual gatherings of you, God's people, all over this city. And we see you reaching inward, loving each other really, really well. Putting Jesus in the face of one another. We see you all over this city reaching upward to the Lord through prayer. Lord, bless us. Reaching upward to the Lord through studying his word. We see, when we look around the city, you reaching out, welcoming people of peace around your tables. We see each of you viewing life through the gospel, right like this. Each of you engaging the gospel in every situation in your life. Lord, how does your grace apply in this situation? Lord, how does your truth apply in this situation? Lord, how does your love apply in this situation? Lord, how does your forgiveness apply in this situation? And then you know what we see as you engage the gospel? We see you experiencing the power of the gospel in these moments. What Jesus said is true. When I engage the gospel, when I live life as Jesus has called me to live it, when I abide in him, life works. Relationships work. And then you know what we see? We see you celebrating, calling your community group together. Guess what? I engage the gospel. And then I experience the power of the gospel. Let's celebrate the gospel is true. That's what we see. Through you, we see Jesus saving. Through you, we see Jesus putting people back together. Through you, we see Jesus renewing and restoring. And we see the kingdom of God growing so much that new churches need to be planted in all of those areas because so many people are being made whole in Christ. Now, that's a big vision, isn't it? But it's really a simple one. It's simply a vision for wholeness in Christ. That's what we want to see as we look out over the city, as Moses looked out over the promised land. Let's own that vision, wholeness in Christ. Let's keep the vision before us. Keep singing. Open the eyes. My heart, Lord, I want to see you. A vision of the Lord. High and lifted up, shining in the light of his glory. That's what will transform us. Singing, praying, Lord, give us, your people, your saints, a vision. But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints, triumphant, rise in 
bright array. The king of glory passes on his way. Hallelujah. From earth's wide bounds, from oceans farthest coast, as far as the eye can see, through gates of pearl, stream in the countless hosts, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that a vision of you would fill our thoughts and our hearts and our eyes, Lord Jesus, as we keep you ever before us, engaging the gospel, experiencing the power of it, celebrating, and doing it all over again. Lord, give us a vision for what the world can be and bring that vision down, Lord, to a vision for what our homes can be and our neighborhoods can be, what our city can be, Lord, if we, your people, will own the vision and believe with all our hearts that wholeness can be found only in Christ. Then, Lord, we'll open our mouths to speak and engage and experience the gospel. So, Lord, give us a vision for what can be the wholeness the completeness that can be through the power of the gospel and the work of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.